L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Okay, I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun, such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Hello, what is up, my friends? So, you know, in case you forgot, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. I'm Liv. That's Liv with a V, by the way. And to Americans, I'm not saying Z. I would say Z because I'm Canadian. Anyway, it's Liv, not Liz. Short for Oliva, which isn't really helpful because that's not really a name. It's short for Oliva, which is like Olivia, but spelled wrong. Like Olive in Italian and Spanish and Latin and... I do love olives. Anyway, I'm not entirely sure why I just clarified that in so much depth, but I did and now I'm done. I'm sorry to announce that the episode I mentioned on Instagram and Facebook on Sunday was, in case you didn't gather, an April Fool's joke. I'm not sure that it was a particularly good one, but then I've never been much of a prankster. I leave that up to the professionals like Hermes. As much as I would love to do an episode on Star Wars, I just don't, at this time, have a mythological connection to bring in. I've managed to make a great many Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings references throughout this podcast, but not Star Wars. Yet. With that out of the way, here's the real thing. This is the podcast where I tell you stories from Greek mythology. In this case, where I continue what is probably the most famous of all Greek mythological stories— Ye old Trojan War. But first... Okay, guys, back to the Trojan War. Thank you for joining me as I veered off last episode. Honestly, it's a bit because I've been procrastinating when it comes to reading the Iliad, but also, that curse is bananas and it really influences Agamemnon and, to an extent, Menelaus, too. Just wait until after the war, though. That's when shit really hits the fan for Agamemnon and his family... 
But that's not what I'm talking about today. Live, stop distracting. Back to the war. Okay, where were we? Right, so I won't regale you with all the reasons the war started because, you know, you should be listening to the episodes of the origin of the Trojan War and the previous episode where we covered the beginning of the end, as it were. But just to catch you up, since it's been a few weeks now, long story short, the Greeks have been at war with the Trojans for nine years. Nine years! And nine years in, Agamemnon and my man Achilles were having a bit of a spat over a woman. A woman they referred to as a prize and basically treated her as an inanimate object ready for the taking. And we all know what that means. And her name? Briseis. For good measure, and just to infuriate those who find this aspect of the podcast excessive, Briseis would be raped, because life was awful for women in ancient Greek mythology, but even more awful during times of war. Patriarchy, patriarchy, patriarchy. You're welcome, men who tell me they get it already. Due to reasons you should have learned in the previous episode, Briseis is now with Agamemnon, even though she was originally the prize of Achilles. With Agamemnon, she will surely be raped. According to the version established by Madeline Meller, she might not have been so lucky were she to stay with Achilles. In fact, in The Song of Achilles, she's a really close friend of Patroclus, and so by extension, Achilles himself. But I will refrain from diving too deep into that version, because as much as I love it, I'm sticking to the Iliad itself, and contemporary stories surrounding it. So, per the Iliad, Achilles handled this upset by going to his mama, Thetis. Thetis then implored Zeus to have the Trojans win against the Greeks long enough for them to realize they really needed to respect Achilles and all his awesomeness. There's a bit of a hiccup when plans go awry, but basically we're still waiting for Zeus to get on that. Last we heard, Odysseus gave a rousing speech, espousing his awesomeness and imploring the Greeks to stay and fight because of the prophecy that they would prevail over the Trojans in the 10th year of the war. So we learned that they basically knew it would take this long, even though they've been complaining about how long it's been taking. I mean, you learned that pretty early on, but whatever. This is episode 28. The Iliad, Part 2, Vineyards and Doves, the Armies of the Trojan War. Sing muses of the idiocy of men as they fight over women. As I said, where we left off last time, Odysseus has just delivered a rousing speech because Odysseus is the shit. He reminded them that a prophecy basically foresaw that the expedition would take this long and so they shouldn't give up hope. They will take Troy yet. Odysseus finishes his speech, and the Greek soldiers show their approval loudly. Huzzah! They might have said, but probably didn't. Good old Nestor speaks up next. Have I mentioned him? Anyway, he's a major player and a voice of reason, which is what he provides now. Nestor calls everyone out on how they've behaved. He rightly points out that they haven't even really been to war yet, and yet they've been caught up in all these petty squabbles. They took an oath remember. And he asks, what is the point of those if they are thrown away because people are being babies? He then says, if there's anyone planning to sail home before they even know if Zeus's prophecy is correct, well, they can go straight to hell. Which is kind of a funny translation because that wasn't really a thing. In the meantime, he tells Agamemnon to get his shit together, though he says it nicer. His point being, Agamemnon, 
you're here to lead the battle, so stick to it. Don't let any more immature arguments take hold. He reminds the Greeks gathered that as soon as they set off to bring war to the Trojans, Zeus shot a lightning bolt in their path, showing them that all was well and they were doing the right thing. It seems we're constantly reminded of ways Zeus showed them that they would win, and yet there are still babies among the bunch who don't believe they'll defeat the Trojans. And then Nestor proceeds to tell them all very seriously that they shouldn't even consider heading home until every one of them has slept with a wife of a Trojan. Only then will they have taken revenge for their troubles of, you know, the loss of a single woman, Helen. That's fair punishment. Please, rape every woman who happened to be married to a Trojan man whose prince that they have no control over either kidnapped or fell in love with a single Greek woman. Super fair, not at all disproportionate punishment. And that's ignoring the fact that the implication here is that they're raping the Trojan women because their husbands have already been killed in battle. Ah, the Greeks, the most civilized of ancient civilizations. Agamemnon loves this speech by Nestor. Ah, he basically tells him that he's the best counselor Agamemnon has. He kisses Nestor's ass real good. Agamemnon makes another little jab at Achilles, basically saying if they could put aside their differences, Troy would be well and truly fucked. But then he's over that and he tells everyone to go eat some food, get your shit ready, you know, weapons and all that, because we're doing this thing. So all the Greeks scatter to their ships and their camps and they prepare for battle. Agamemnon, of course, sacrifices a thing because poor animals are the real losers of the Trojan War. And then he calls together all his best dudes. Nestor and Indomenius, two Ajaxes, Ajax the Great and Ajax the Lesser, sucks to be Ajax the Lesser, Diomedes too, and Odysseus and Menelaus. In his sacrifice, Agamemnon calls out to Zeus, most glorious king and sky dweller of the black clouds, a phrase I hadn't heard before, and he asks Zeus to not let the sun set until Agamemnon has destroyed Troy and the Trojans once and for all. But does Zeus listen? Of course not. A fun thing about reading Homer is that you get to learn all about the process of sacrificing an animal. And by fun, I mean really disgusting. There is a 10-line stanza here about how you sacrifice and what you do with the body and all the bits. And it includes tasting entrails. Awesome. Anyway, that's all I'll say about the ins and outs of a sacrifice, but all to say, Agamemnon's sacrifice to Zeus, and it was gory. As they've sacrificed, once again, Nestor serves to push Agamemnon in the direction of finally finishing this thing. He tells Agamemnon that they shouldn't waste any more time, and that Agamemnon should call the Greeks together to go to battle. Finally. So that's exactly what Agamemnon does. He commands heralds to summon the troops, and everyone is gathered. Once everyone is together and ready to go, well, then suddenly Athena is there. She's with them, holding her shield and being a badass, ready to go. Athena uses her goddess of war powers, whatever those may be, to rouse the troops. She gets everyone psyched and ready, and suddenly they're not tired, they're psyched up, and they forget they ever considered heading home in the first place. The Greeks are pumped, and they've massed on the plains of Scamander, 
Scamander was a river that ran through the region, but also a personification of the river. He will come into play. Right now, we're talking a plane on the banks of the river, just to really confuse the fuck out of you. Two Scamanders. And yeah, nerds, Scamander like Newt Scamander, she said, without providing any kind of opinion of the Fantastic Beast movies going forward. Homer really wants us to understand how impressive the Greeks must have looked once they were gathered there. Gleams off polished bronze flash through the whole sky. Marshland resounds, and many other floofily descriptive words to describe just how daunting those Greeks seemed. And Agamemnon has really come into his own at this point, too. And by that I just mean, when they've massed on the plains of Scamander, we get a real show of a description of him, according to this translation, which admittedly is not the most known or well-respected, but honestly, it's just easier to read than the others I've tried. So sue me. And anyway, according to this translation, Agamemnon has quite, quote, splendid eyes and head like almighty Zeus's, his thighs like the thighs of Ares, his chest like Poseidon's. So I think we're to take it that he's a fit man, though I don't know much about Ares' thighs being better than Poseidon's or the latter's chest being more impressive, but we're to take it that Agamemnon is looking really ready to go. It continues, quote, As a bull stands out in a herd above all the others, sovereign among the cows as they graze in a field, just so, on that day, did Lord Zeus make Agamemnon supreme over all the warriors massed before Troy. Then, while Homer delves into an intricate and inclusive list of all the captains involved on the Greek side— and how many ships came with them. Stanzas and stanzas and pages and pages of names and cities and, frankly, far too many Greek words that I would just butcher if I tried. And bore you. It would definitely bore you. Highlights, though, include that in Boeotia, there were people from a town, quote, teeming with doves, and another, quote, abundant in vineyards. So, you know, those dudes were cool. Later, we hear of another place abundant in vineyards, Greece had its priorities straight, and of warriors who were fierce and grew their hair long in back. So ancient mullets, is my assumption. Yet more mention of vineyards and places teeming with doves, as well as some nasty anecdotes when relating captains. For instance, there was a king who had boasted of his singing skills and how they would surpass even the muses. And of course, this was a stupid plan, and they maimed him and he could no longer sing. And then on top of that, he also forgot how to play the lyre. There was also a captain who was left behind on Lemnos because he was suffering from a wound from a poisonous water snake. But don't worry, they had a second commander. Know that that was only a small sampling of tidbits from what is a very long and insane list. The rest you will have to miss out on or read yourself. You're welcome. What is fascinating about this list is the information it provides historically, thousands of years later, essentially were presented with a list of locations that existed in Bronze Age Greece. Perhaps not all the men sent along were real, but the locations themselves provide vital information to historians and archaeologists and nerds everywhere. It also provides insight, of course, into which regions had vineyards. Again, vital information. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. 
That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Okay, I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun, such a great entertainer, and that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney Collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Next, and most important, who is best? Homer wants you to know. But not only did we find out who is the best of men, but even before that, which horse is best? Again, vital information. Homer tells us that the best horses are the mares of Admetus. Finally, ladies getting their due. These horses were fast as birds and bred by Apollo himself. And secondary, Homer tells us, the best of the men was Ajax the Great. He was, as you might have guessed, great. Also tall, which explains the name more so, but still. But don't go thinking that Ajax was the absolute best. Because, of course, that title falls to our friend Achilles. But at the moment, Achilles is not participating. And so the title of best falls to Ajax. Homer even says that Achilles' horses were the best, but they too don't get the title right now. Because of Agamemnon's removal of Briseis, Achilles is hiding away in his camp with Patroclus and the Myrmidons. And he rages at Agamemnon for what he's done. So all but Achilles and his Myrmidons marched forward against Troy. Finally. Now, as the Greeks are marching towards Troy from their ships and camps on the beaches, Zeus sends his messenger to Priam. Iris is the messenger goddess sent by Zeus. I don't think I've ever mentioned her before. She's a messenger goddess along with Hermes, who's the messenger god. Though as far as I understand it, Iris is kind of of older mythology. She appears in Homer, but she's the less referenced messenger in myths originating in later times. She's the goddess of the rainbow as well, and was said to travel on one when she carries messages to mortals from Olympus. So the next time you see a rainbow, don't go looking for the leprechaun's pot of gold. Instead, be on the lookout for a lady that might just be a goddess. You never know. 
So Zeus sent Iris with a message for King Priam of Troy. She appeared to him in the form of one of his sons, who was sent on the lookout for movement by the Greeks. Iris warns Priam and the Trojans all assembled with him that the Greeks are advancing on the city. And she tells him there are a lot of them. Countless leaves or grains of sand are similes used to describe the sheer volume of Greek troops that there are. Iris tells Prince Hector, Priam's eldest son and his best warrior, that he too should ensure that all the Trojans and people of the region in general are ready to defend the city against the Greeks. Hector knows that it's a goddess speaking with him, and he goes off to prepare them all for war. And then, well then, Homer presents us with a list of the Trojan allies, where they come from, and who they're led by, similar to what we were given with regards to the Greek troops. In this case, I will mention only one of the many, and that is because this young man will be very important after the war. A man by the name of Aeneas led the Dardanian troops, allies of Troy. Aeneas was the son of Aphrodite and Anchises, a story which I'll cover another time. For now, you'll want to remember his name, Aeneas. When the Greeks and the Trojans finally faced each other, ready for battle, it is Paris that steps ahead of his troops and addresses the Greeks. We're told he looks quite spiffy. He has a leopard skin slung over his shoulder and a bow and a sword and two spears. So many weapons it feels unwieldy, but what do I know? Paris asks for the best and the bravest of the Greeks to fight one-on-one with him. But it's Menelaus who is most affected by the sight of this super-hot Paris who has stolen his wife. Menelaus approaches him in his armor and his chariot, ready to fight. But as you might recall, Paris is not the best of the best when it comes to combat, nor is he particularly well-suited to facing off, given he stole Helen away in the night. And so, when Paris sees Menelaus coming at him, he backs off immediately. This prompts his brother to give him a real talking to, and I mean like 20 lines of really mean stuff. Wish you'd never been born, you're such a coward, you're a wife-stealer, the Trojans should have stoned you to death ages ago. Real nice stuff like that. Brotherly affection at its finest. Paris, then, trying to save face and recognize that this is really all his fault, proposes that he and Menelaus should fight to the death, and that the survivor and winner will get to keep Helen as his wife. Hector passes this message on to the Greeks, and Menelaus agrees. They would swear an oath that this was the decision, and that if all went smoothly, the war will be over before it even truly starts. They will sacrifice some lambs, a black one and a white one, to represent the earth and the sky, and another in the name of Zeus. Menelaus requests that it be Priam himself who swears the oath, because he rightly points out that maybe Priam's sons aren't the most trustworthy. And so men are sent off to get these lambs and to get King Priam. While this oath is being prepared, Iris flies to Helen in the form of Paris's sister. Iris tells Helen what's being proposed, and Helen wants to watch. 
if there's going to be a fight to the death between your new husband and your old husband and the winner will take you as the prize, well, then you're damn well going to watch it all go down. It's not clear who Helen wants to win this battle. As you might have gathered, I don't think the ancient Greeks were too concerned with what a woman might feel about a situation that directly affects her. We do know, though, that watching as Menelaus and Paris are about to fight, she does miss her daughter with Menelaus, who she had left behind. Miss Granger herself, Hermione. Helen sits with Priam and watches the Greeks and the Trojans below. They were, I assume, watching from the walls in the city. And Priam, very nicely, tells her that it isn't her he blames for the war. He might be the only one who doesn't blame her. But no, he blames the gods. And then Priam spots one of the Greeks and is super impressed. Who is that tall man who looks so magnificent that he must be a king? Helen tells him that that's Agamemnon. Priam then proceeds to spot many of the other impressive Greeks and has Helen give him a rundown of who they are and why they're special. He points out Odysseus and Ajax and Indomenius. Helen tells Priam all about them. Then she wonders, there are two heroes she's expecting to see but doesn't. Castor and Pollux, her two brothers. When all the Greeks had reconvened by the Trojans, they prepare the sacrifice. King Priam and Antenor, his closest advisor, are taken to the group to witness the oath between the Greeks and the Trojans, between Menelaus and Paris. Agamemnon announces the oath. If Paris wins, Helen will continue to be his, and the Greeks will simply pack up and sail home. But if Menelaus wins, Helen and her possessions will be returned to him along with payment for the wrong that's been committed. Agamemnon states that if the Trojans are unwilling to pay retribution for this, the Greeks will stay and fight them until the very end. And with that... Agamemnon slaughters the animals in, once again, an all-too-descriptive scene of this epic poem, and they pour the libations to the gods in support of this oath, and then, Greeks and Trojans alike, pray to Zeus, and they say, quote, Zeus, most glorious king, and you other immortals, whichever army is first to betray this oath, by breaking the truce, may their brains be spilled on the ground. As this wine is spilled, their brains and the brains of their children. And may their dear wives be other men's slaves and whores. Such a beautiful sentiment. Next episode, Paris and Menelaus fight, but who shall be the victor? And where will the war go next? Stay tuned. Thank you all for listening once again, and thank God for Spotify because it's brought so many more of you to me. Welcome once again, it's been wonderful to have you. Before I leave you, a note on the Iliad. Full disclosure, friends. While I know much of the story of the Trojan War, and I did indeed major in classics in university... Well, honestly, I've never before read the Iliad, and honestly, I'm reading it piece by piece in order to do this podcast. 
That's all to say, we're learning together. And if I present something one way and change it later, well, all apologies. That's because I just don't have the time to read hundreds of pages of epic poem before writing this podcast and subsequently having to read it piece by piece, episode by episode yet again. So really, we're just doing it together. And isn't that nice? But that's all to say, I would highly recommend that you be smarter than me and read the Iliad on your own if you're really interested in delving deeper into the writing of the ancient Greeks. It's a stunning piece of literature with incredible similes and metaphor and a depth of story that is always hard to believe came from thousands of years ago. These people truly were incredible. I also cannot wait to get to the escapades of our friend Odysseus after the war because I have indeed read the Odyssey and goddamn do I love it. But soon enough. Thank you again for listening. You're all wonderful. Please, if you like this podcast, write and review me on iTunes. Not only does it thrill me to my core, but it also helps others find the podcast, and that would be wonderful, don't you think? So even if you don't listen on iTunes, because I know a lot of you are Spotify users, I would truly appreciate it if you reviewed me on there, if you liked it. You can feel free to avoid a review if you didn't like it. You can't see, but I winked there. Please also follow me wherever you social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at MythsBaby. And you can visit my website for more info and some fun stuff, including weird pictures of me swimming in mythology. I'm Liv, and I absolutely love this shit. L-A-S-I-K LASIK.com Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.